0: Because the prevalence of the disease is so high now, someone could venture out virtually anywhere and become infected. And many of the individuals that recently become infected have no idea where they picked it up.
1: Welcome to the Rain Insights podcast on COVID 19. I'm Emily Donahue. In today's podcast, Rain founder David Lawrence catches up with Dr. Bill Lang and Dr. Fred Southwick about the latest in vaccine news and reminders for best practices amid an uncontrolled spike in cases. Let's listen in.
2: Bill, Fred, uh, again, thank you for spending some time with us. Uh, lot's happened this week. thought we'd just kick off with the announcement concerning the um, potential vaccine or probably vaccines that uh, will be available. Would love to get your perspective on Uh, issues of efficacy, availability, distribution, the timetable, and uh, maybe we can also talk about receptiveness of of people to actually uh, agreeing to a vaccine. Fred, why don't I start off with you?
0: Yeah, the announcement is very exciting. Uh, To have a vaccine with a 90% efficacy, that means 90% of those that received the vaccine were protected if they were exposed is uh, a very, the highest I've personally ever heard of. So this means that this vaccine will make a huge difference. Um, Some of, for instance, some of the influenza vaccines really are only effective uh, at 60 to 70%, sometimes 50% efficacy. So this is, uh, if you take this, um, you have an excellent chance of being protected. And so I think that's very important. And I think that's a great selling point from the standpoint of of patients and individuals, that yes, this is going
3: to save you. But I want to make a couple of caveats on the um, vaccine announcement. Number one, it was really a headlines announcement. They did not provide a lot of clinical data. They said that will be forthcoming, but what they have seen is, and that's where they give the 90%. So if that's real, everything that Fred said is, is right on target. But I, I, I'm I want to be a little bit skeptical until we see the actual data, but I think it's, yeah. So I think so I think that's, that's very, very good. And I, from all the data I've seen, even 50, 60% on influenza is a good year. 2014, it was less than 20% effective. So um, 20% efficacy on that vaccine. So yes, this is, I mean, if 90%, then that's a huge deal. And the other part of that, that that number that they quoted, at least the way they quoted it was was protection, meaning almost looking at it in a binary manner, either you get it or you don't. But typically with vaccines, even if you get the disease, if you are vaccinated, it is a much less uh, serious bout with the infection. So it's not only is it 90% if that's true, but it's plus, it's 90% plus because you're not, it's going to re- reduce the risk of serious disease or death in those who get the, the vaccine also.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One of the things, if you've got a partial immunity, um, then it, the number of viral particles that will actually multiply within your cells and within your bloodstream will be reduced and therefore you are less likely to get severe disease and probably pulmonary disease which is the most feared will be very much less likely if you're vaccinated
3: and in addition you're much less infectious if you were vaccinated even if the vaccine did not completely take hold so i mean this there is all good news here i'll just I'll, i want to see the data so i can be confident in it but it's all good news and then the one other point about that is Moderna, which is the this very, very similar, it's not identical, but very, very similar technology, has kind of hinted that they're seeing similar results, although they they haven't even put out any headlines. But they've said that their results should be coming out by the end of the month. So, you know, around Thanksgiving, we should have have more data.
2: So this is, uh, as all both of you are saying, is very, very good news, and obviously, uh, some of the points you're making uh, for this vaccine are no less applicable to uh, your urging people to take their flu shots uh, this season, both from a prevention standpoint and also in terms of mitigation of any impact should, uh, should you contract the flu. But what about availability, production, distribution?
3: One point is that they had initially indicated and what the U.S. government contracted for was 100 million doses uh, by the end, by year end. What they said last week when they, or earlier this week when they made their announcement was that they projected that they could have 20 million doses a month. Now, they weren't completely clear whether they meant in December or including the latter part of November, but that's a lot less certainly than 100 million by the end of the year. 40 million doses will just barely begin to hit the uh, uh, the, the healthcare workers, which is probably going to be the the first big group to get vaccinated. But it won't get too much beyond that. It won't get too too far into the the at risk population until they start ramping up massive production, which they have said will be probably over the course of the early spring so april is kind of the month that people are looking at where there will be lots of, lots of vaccine available now that also does not though address what's going on with the moderna vaccine moderna has by what we understand has already been in production with the hoping that they will get the their emergency use authorization. If that's the case, and they do get their emergency use authorization in December, they also may, contri- may contribute a lot to the, num- the millions of doses that may be available in the short term. But that we just don't know. And then plus we have the two other vaccines that not messenger RNA vaccines that are out there that haven't really made any announcements yet, yet but have fairly consistently said that they should have uh, results around Thanksgiving or probably now moving into December.
0: One issue with the vaccine, as far as that, you require two doses. And this is going to create some logistics. And obviously, the vaccine's not going to go as far. A second issue, and particularly in uh, rural areas, is the issue of it has to be kept in minus 80 degrees centigrade uh, freezers because the RNA is has to be kept very, very cold not to uh, break down. So those are gonna create a little bit of a supply chain uh, complication that could uh, interfere with some people getting the the vaccine.
3: And on that though, fortunately, um, the the big pharmacies and the big distributors like McKesson and there are a number of the big distributors as well as uh, UPS and FedEx, have said that they've been working on this. They knew this was coming. They, ha- they have been putting the freezers in place. So it's not, it's hopefully will not be as big a deal as we thought it may be. But as Fred says, it's that's certainly a non-trivial issue and it's not a standard vaccine distribution um, system.
2: So you're highlighting storage and distribution and logistical issues. Uh, but also, Fred, um, you were alluding to some critical decisions that will have to be made about who gets this vaccine and in what order. Any insights in terms of how that process is going to be undertaken?
0: At this point, I don't think it's totally clear. We're in the middle of two different administrations. And actually, the uh, Biden administration is probably the one that's going to predominantly have to make decisions on this. And they're just getting started
3: well, the biggest guidance so far has come from the, the uh, Institutes of Medicine, where they have the big panel that got together over the summer, and they came out and they said that priority one should be um, healthcare workers then first responders. Then they were kind of nebulous. It was generally um, nursing homes and other institutional settings. Uh, where people in, are in collective housing should be the next priority, and then moving into the general population. But there's also a, a scientific body body of knowledge that said you're actually more effective if you do start doing some of the general population early on, also. But the the guidance from from IOM was definitely in the order I said.
2: Any thoughts as well about? Uh whether people will be receptive to taking this vaccine as soon as it's available. Obviously, there's been a great deal of focus on uh, prior diseases, but, you know, there's a significant anti-vax movement around the world. Uh, There are conspiracy theories, et cetera. Any thoughts in terms of how this vaccine will be received?
0: You know, as far as the vaccine, because of its... uh... A putative efficacy, I think that's going to help market it more readily. Um, I think the, the fact that we're having a surge right now, this is very frightening. Also, the message has been pretty consistent that this will be a great benefit to everyone. This may be a little bit easier to market than prior vaccines. And certainly, it is a life and death issue. So it's not like this is a luxury. There has to be a uniform message and everybody has to be saying the same thing. Uh, The physicians, uh, the epidemiologists, the government, the press, we've all got to be very consistent in our messages and that will be very helpful as well. But Bill, I'm sure you have some thoughts on this.
3: Don't worry, I'm not going to stray into politics on this, but I think assuming there is a change of administration, I think one of the things that will happen is that there will not be the, the reflexive no if it was a, uh, a Trump administration saying, you need to do this. If it's the Biden administration coming out and saying, look, the science is here. This is the best thing. You need to do it. The president steps up in front of a camera and gets a needle jabbed in his arm. I think that will all go a long way to uh, creating a successful vaccine program.
2: Let me sort of switch gears because the data coming out this week uh, around the U.S. has you know, been troubling to say the least. What is the data telling you? What should we be focused on?
0: North Dakota, South Dakota... Uh, in particular, have just had astronomical levels uh, higher than we've ever seen before 150 per 100,000, uh, even higher in some counties. And the frightening part about both South Dakota and North Dakota is many people still do not believe that they should be wearing masks. Is in the face of overwhelming data in favor of masks that face masks not only protect you from infecting others, others from infecting you, and is the key intervention to break this cycle. And what's going on, because the, the prevalence of disease is so high now that someone could venture out virtually anywhere and become infected. And many of the individuals that recently become infected have no idea where they picked it up. So this, is, this becomes a very, very scary Uh, From the standpoint of of protecting yourself in these high prevalence areas, it may be almost impossible, particularly when people are refusing to wear masks.
3: In in previous discussions, we talked about the the concept of one ten and twenty five—that's cases per hundred thousand per day and averaged over seven days. What we're getting in the United States, where almost everybody is at least in that ten to twenty five range, typical, typically in the higher and more than half of the states in the country now are in that 25. That's considered uncontrolled community transmission. That's the, the don't go there zone. Back in the summertime, when we were counseling people on, on travel, you know, we'd say don't travel, but if people were traveling, we would say, yeah, you don't wanna go any place where the rate is over 25 cases per 100,000 per day. Well, if you say that now, that basically means don't go out your door. Yeah there are a few places in the country that are that are lower than that but the bulk of the country is in that high at risk region and Europe is not far behind although over the last week there has been some evidence in Europe that they may be starting to peak. It may just be reporting difficulties and they may just be a little bit, um, it may just be the reporting's behind and that's what it looks like. But right now it looks like they may be starting to level out a bit. That actually portends well for us because remember their peak started about two weeks before our peak started, our wave, I should say. Maybe we're starting to get to the right time, but that's only gonna happen if people really start carefully shutting down their, um, their unsafe behaviors in public.
2: Fred, as you have highlighted in particular, but, you know, Bill's had firsthand experience. The issue is not just simply about people who are contracting the virus, but the tax on the resources. So are we starting to see that as well?
0: Absolutely. The big problem, uh, is that, you know, Originally, the big New York City outbreak overwhelmed the health system. However, actually, physicians and nurses were able to come from areas of the country that did not have a high number of cases, and therefore, the needs of patients were met. Now, with it exploding everywhere, no one can afford to have anybody leave their area. So this means that in in areas like South Dakota, North Dakota, Montana, Uh, there will be no uh, outside support. And this is really frightening in that people can just go so long going at 100% day and night before they uh, burn out and before they're just absolutely exhausted. And our experience is the more tired a physician or nurse becomes, the more likely they are to make errors. And the more dangerous it becomes, and the health system becomes more and more error-prone. And I'm afraid we're, we're in that era right now. And I know Texas, is El Paso, and that area is overwhelmed. Uh, there are parts of uh, certainly North Dakota and South Dakota and Montana are becoming overwhelmed. And it's likely to happen in many other places as well. So we're, I think this is red alert all the way, and it's a very dangerous situation.
3: The, the, the one partial saving grace however is that while the hospitalization numbers are up uh, and they're up just on on because of the sheer number of cases it's not that the rate is staying the same the hospitalization rate is actually down because primarily because it's a younger population that's driving the numbers but but just the sheer numbers of cases is driving a number of hospitalizations. But fortunately, the rate of intensive care hospitalizations is not as high. So that, that very, very dear resource of ICU beds, ICU nurses, ICU physicians is not being, you can't, you can't take the New York April model and apply that to the country. But still, we are filling our hospitals with, um, with COVID cases, and it will start taxing everybody. Thank, thankfully, not like it did in New York right now. But it's still going to be filling up the beds. And the other thing that that means is that routine care. And by routine care, I mean things like cancer screenings, cancer treatments, necessary but not emergent surgical procedures. Those are all getting put off. So the morbidity around the country that is growing, not directly due to COVID, but because of COVID, is going to have a significant long-term effect even after we have a vaccination that takes COVID itself out of the picture for the most part.
2: Some focus has uh, been applied to what are the primary sources of the problems here and just common sense, practical steps, because I don't think it can be reviewed too often. The places people should not be going to, what they should not be doing and what they actually should be doing.
0: This virus, as we know, is spread by aerosol and droplets. And the problem is when you have family gatherings, they're usually in houses and those houses do not have, in general, most houses don't have very good ventilation systems. What that means is if everybody's sitting around, even if they're wearing masks, they are producing a a fair amount of aerosol as they speak that filters out of the masks and into the air and builds up over time. And so if you're Spending a substantial time together in enclosed spaces, uh, you are at risk. If any one of the individuals in that room has the virus and is spreading it, uh, it's very likely that everybody in that room will will get the virus. So right now, it's where it's such a bad uh, level, as Bill mentioned, over most places over 25 per hundred thousand new cases every day. We really cannot afford for people to come from other areas to get together in a family event. Um, it really should be the immediate family that's in the local area and be very, very cautious. And I don't think you should have a gathering over uh, 10 people at a maximum and probably more like uh, six or seven. And then don't spend too long in one room and possibly the problem is the weather's getting colder. But it'd be a good idea to step outside and, if possible, open windows when you can. When it comes to closed spaces, restaurants are absolutely out. Bars are absolutely out at this point. They're too dangerous and it's too likely because you, in order to eat, you have to take your mask off. In order to drink something, you have to take your mask off. And uh, in that closed spaces, public spaces, where there are a lot of different people coming in and out, it's very likely there will be someone who's a super spreader. Uh, in that environment.
3: Let me just remind people about airplanes. You think if airplanes aren't dangerous, how can a home with just a few people be dangerous? Airplanes are designed to turn over the air 30 times an hour, higher than that even. So they're constantly turning over the air. Think about your typical house, especially in the wintertime. Many houses that don't have forced air systems, they use radiators, things like that. There's very, very, very small amounts of air exchange. So. I try to be realistic and I recognize that people are going to get together over the holidays. No matter what we say, people are going to do it. So while I agree with everything Fred said, we need to minimize the the holiday gatherings, especially minimize people coming in from, from other places in the country. But recognizing that it's going to happen, what can you do to make your house as safe as possible? Open windows. Yes, it's cold. Open them anyway. Put on a sweater. Burn a fire if you've got a fireplace. Fires are incredibly energy inefficient, and the reason they're energy inefficient is because they're sending all that air up the flue, but they're getting that air from leaks in the houses and from open windows. That's going to create a natural air exchange. If you have an air conditioning system, even if it's wintertime, turn it on the fan mode and make sure that you have fresh filters in place so you're filtering the air in your house. So doing those things will make it safer. And if you have any at-risk people as part of your family gathering, and most family gatherings are multi-generational, clearly the at-risk person should have a mask, and really, everybody should have a mask. Now, if you're not doing it, you're putting the at-risk people, especially, at even greater risk. So those are the things that I think that you can do. And one other point that I like to make is I know a lot of people are saying, well, I'll just get tested. And once I'm tested, I'm good. That's not, that's not true because all tests do is tests say that you are not infected at the moment of the test. We know that there's an incubation period and you can become infectious shortly thereafter. The next day, even a few hours later, you could reach that level. So tests do not clear you except at the moment that you are tested. So that may decrease risk somewhat, but it's not a a golden ticket to be able to go into a large group gathering. And that's especially true with the holidays beginning with Thanksgiving when we have all of the college students coming home. And I guarantee you, college students have not, for the most part, been practicing uh, safe public behaviors when they come to the end of the semester and they're having their end-of-year parties with their friends.
2: Again, I'm going to summarize what you have been telling the audience from uh, the very, very beginning, which is to wear a mask, to wash your hands, social distance, to be mindful of those who have pre-existing conditions and are particularly at risk, and uh, not to let your guard down. Again, thank you both. Insights are just very, very important here and very helpful in terms of reminding us uh, not only about the medical science but the behavioral science and uh, a good dose of common sense. So, Fred, Bill, thanks again. Thank you, David.
3: Thank you, David.
1: Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics individuals and organizations turn to rain for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. If you like what you heard today and would like to learn more, visit rainnetwork.com slash join. That's R-A-N-E network.com slash join. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.